Welcome to the Founder to Mentor podcast. My name is Mike Fada. I'm an entrepreneur with multiple nine-figure exits and a passion for health and mentorship. Join me on a journey where I connect with world-class founder mentors to inspire your personal and professional growth. Let's jump into it. My name is Mike Fada. Tonight, I'm excited to host Kara Golden of Hint, Hint Water, Hint, um, and uh, the room flow. After our intros, I'm going to ask Kara some some thoughts on a few topics, and then we're going to be inviting some founders up if they have a question of Kara or I. We are going to be a maximum one hour. Um, just a little bit about me, if you don't know my journey. Uh, I grew up poor with a single mom, left school at 13 to start working. I wasn't educated about health when I was young and fell prey to the fast food movement and ended up weighing 300 pounds. Uh, and then I became sick and tired of being sick and tired and started my 100-pound weight loss journey at 18, which led me to founding uh, Manitoba Harvest at 21. And Manitoba Harvest has the uh, claim to fame of helping to pioneer the uh, global hemp food industry. And we grew that business to over $100 million in sales. And in 2020, it passed $500 million in lifetime sales with over 16,000 retailer partners and millions of happy customers. And we were very fortunate to, uh, to sell the business uh, twice uh, with the second sale happening in 2009 to Tilray for $419 million. And now I spend my time helping other founders to achieve their mission through investment, advisement, mentoring, and board governance. And if we're not already connected, I'm active on LinkedIn and you can connect with me there. So I'm, I'm excited to have this chat with Kara with you all. Uh, I met Kara through LinkedIn, so the power of LinkedIn. Uh, if you're not on LinkedIn, if you are on LinkedIn, then you, you likely have seen Kara's content as she has a very strong social following. And I was personally drawn to Kara's positive and optimistic entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, Kara is a executive turned entrepreneur that uh, we're going to hear about, a mom of four, an author, a speaker and a social media influencer. And she's also a member of uh, the Young Presidents Organization, YPO, which we uh, we also share in common. So welcome, Kara. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Hello, everyone. Do you, uh, Kara, can you kick us off with uh, with an intro and uh, about yourself and, uh, and Hint? Yeah, absolutely. So I started Hint about... Uh, actually just shy of 16 years ago. Can you imagine? And, uh, and it was really out of my own interest, very kind of similar to you, Mike, but my own interest to get myself healthy. And I had been a tech executive known as a tech executive um, prior to founding Hint. And it was, um, I had a great career in tech. I ran e-commerce and shopping and uh, for seven years for America Online. Prior to that, I actually worked in media. I started out my career at Time Magazine and then actually went to work for CNN. Funny to think about it still that it was kind of a late stage startup. Ted Turner was still running around the office. So I learned a lot about culture, shifting from a very buttoned up organization to, you know, this late stage startup with Ted running around in his suit and cowboy boots. Um, lots of memories there. And, uh, and then, you know, ultimately ended up being involved in an acquisition that that, like I said, ended up to be America Online and find myself there and 
when it was a billion dollars in revenue, I had sort of thought about what I was doing as, as really fun and really interesting. It was, you know, a hockey stick. I never knew what a hockey stick was until I was at AOL. And, and then when it was a billion dollars, I thought, okay, what's next? Do I wait until it's 2 billion? I'm, I'm excited, but I'm sort of excited about what I've built versus the future. And that's when I, you know, fondly talk about it as I got off the train and I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and it was kind of a time when I had three young kids at the time under the age of four and I wanted to take a break. That's was not a popular idea for many people to accept um, as a one of the youngest uh, female executives at America Online, one of the few women as well. And, you know, the fact that I wanted to go spend time with my family was just a little bizarre to people. Uh, but during that time, that's when I really started to think about what was important to me. And health was really important, not just for me, but also for my family. And that's when I came up with this idea for Hint, when I realized that I wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be. I had gained a bunch of weight over the course of all my pregnancies, but also had developed terrible skin issues and my energy levels were low. And so when I finally gave up drinking diet soda, and which I thought I was doing the right thing for years drinking diet, um, when I had this epiphany to actually test um, go, moving from diet soda to plain water, I realized that I was actually feeling better. My skin was clearing up. After two and a half weeks, I lost a big chunk of weight. But there was one problem. Water was boring to me. I thought I was like sentenced to, you know, this world of boring water for the rest of my life. So I sliced up fruit and threw it in the water. I think kind of thought I was cheating initially when I threw the fruit in the water because I was not really focusing on anything other than taste. And I just needed it in order to drink water. And then what I realized was that this product wasn't in the supermarket. And so I thought, gosh, it'd be really fun to get a product on the shelf at a you know, my local Whole Foods, and that'd be kind of a kick. I never still thought of myself as an entrepreneur. I really thought of myself as solving a problem for myself, a, con a convenience issue that I wanted, you know, a bottle that had, you know, what I wanted to drink in it versus my diet soda. And I felt like if I could actually help a lot of other people by launching a product, then that'd be pretty darn cool. And so, I'll stop there. That was that was kind of my purpose. Well, that's another thing that we have in common because, yeah, when I went on my uh, weight loss, started my weight loss journey and I was on the no-fat diet, uh, I thought diet soda was also the healthy thing to do until I realized that it's a really chemical shitstorm and uh, should stay uh, stay far away from that. Did did you did you know how tough the uh, the ready to drink or the beverage um, industry was when you started the business, or was it just is it just pure passion? Yeah, I mean, the only thing I knew about the beverage industry was that there were you know I could name on probably one hand the number of beverages. I mean, my my love was Diet Coke, and I loved and drinking Diet Coke. The people at 
at Diet Pepsi love me because <laughs> I never drink Diet Pepsi and I don't talk about, you know, Diet Pepsi because I was I was all in in the Diet Coke world. And for me, it was a, you know, I just sat there and never looked back. Um, I was, you know, it's funny, I'm a Gen Xer and I especially in, I just recently wrote a book and, and doing a lot of the research around my book, realized that when I was in high school, I started drinking Diet Coke. I didn't know that that's when Diet Coke came out. I started drinking Diet Coke because my mom was a tab drinker and God forbid I drink the same thing as my mom was drinking in high school. So I start drinking Diet Coke and again, thought Diet Coke was better than full-fledged soda. And, you know, I just never really researched it that much. I just believed. And, you know, it was fine for a while. And then it started really catching up to me and screwed up my metabolism and lots of other things. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, when the skin issues hit me, where I was getting terrible adult acne, that's when I realized that my body was like quietly shutting down. And I think I was also it was the first time when I started hint that I started hearing from consumers that they were experiencing kind of this very similar situation to what I had been through um, by drinking diet sodas, but a little different in that some of these consumers had developed this thing called type two diabetes. And I had never heard of type 2 diabetes. And, you know, I'd heard of type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes was at that time, 16 years ago, about 2% of the population had type 2 diabetes or prediabetes. And so many people were on to this, you know, this, this disease that I had never heard of. So I was so curious about it. And I, I think I was probably pre-type 2 diabetes, but was never diagnosed with it and sort of caught it, in, you know, before it was actually a problem. But I think it's, you know, what we've learned today about type 2 diabetes is, you know, it's, it's not typically people who are downing sugar. It's people who are actually trying really hard to get healthy and sort of fallen victim to low fat and to your point, um, to your point, Mike, all the, you know, diet sweeteners and fake stuff that's out there that people are um, consuming because they believe that it's better for them. And the reality is it's actually just wreaking havoc on, on people's systems. Totally agree. And, you know, I, I think um, a part of your guys' success um, was going direct to consumer. And I think the only thing harder than selling water or selling a beverage, uh, is, is selling it, you know, uh, in the direct to consumer channel. But what, can you talk about what, what drove, uh, you guys to start selling direct to consumer and maybe any kind of insights, uh, that you'd share with other, other founders on how you created success there? Yeah. So I had been running the direct to consumer, um, partnerships at America online. So I hadn't actually run a store, but I was dealing with everybody from L.L. Bean to J. Crew, and, you know, learned so many lessons along the way from them. But when I had left AOL, I really thought that I was leaving direct-to-consumer. I, I didn't think that I was bringing that into this industry primarily because everybody in the beverage world told me that the way you sell product and you get sales is through stores 
And so I believed that for many, many years. And one of the stories I share in my book is when really we had this, we had, everybody's got points in their journey that they remember, especially building their business for, for me, an important and pivotal point was when we got into Starbucks, we, it's a, you know, bit of a story. And then finally we ended up getting into all 11,000 locations. And I remember thinking I was so smart because we're, you know, asking all the right questions. We're setting, we're figuring out what the goals are of Starbucks before, you know, we end up selling our first bottle so that we knew what success was. And Starbucks had the buyer that we had told us that if you sell a bottle and a half per store per day, you're you're good. You're better than good. Like, well, we won't kick you out. We'll leave you alone. And that's really successful. So we worked really hard. And after six months, we got to that point. And I was every day looking at those records and, and understanding my data. And I thought I was understanding, standing my data, looking at the sales numbers. And finally, about 18 months into the relationship, we get an email from the new buyer and the new buyer says, Hey, I want to talk to you and get on the phone with her. And she said, I have some really bad news for you. Unfortunately, it's come from, you know, the top levels of the company. We're actually going to put food and sandwiches in the case. And so we have to remove you guys from the case. And I, I'm like, you can't do that. I mean, we're doing three, three bottles per store per day. I mean, we're killing it. You must be looking at someone else's data. And uh, she said, I'm really sorry. It's a higher ring. It's, you know, higher margins. And you sell your product for two bucks a bottle. And I'm really sorry. And, you know, I don't cry very often. But I cried at that moment because I thought, how in the heck? Like, I didn't think that we weren't doing anything wrong. I mean, it was just a strategy change. It made sense for them. It made zero sense for me. I had investors that were counting on this. I had employees that were counting on this. It was awful. And then I decided to uh, find the good in, you know, in the challenge. And I came back to our team and I said, okay, it is really bad. And I haven't totally figured out what we're going to do with this inventory that's six months of inventory sitting in our warehouse right now that we'll probably have to destroy. But what Starbucks did do was pay us on time and expose us to so many cities in the U.S. that we would not have been able to get into without Starbucks. So while I'm, you know, trying to make a, you know, happier time out of the situation, that's when we got an email from Amazon. And Amazon said, hey, I buy you, the buyer said, I buy your product all the time at Starbucks with my latte every morning. And can I get on the phone with you? I'd really like to put you into our grocery program and get on the phone with them. And I'm trying to figure out, do I actually tell them that I've been kicked out of Starbucks? Starbucks gave us two weeks notice, by the way, before they kicked us out. Um, so that was when uh, I didn't tell him that we had been kicked out of there because I said he's not asking and really what he's asking is can we sell him the product how long it'll take and uh, so I shared with him that I had Blackberry Hint in our warehouse and if he wanted it that he just needed to wire me the money and we could send him three truckloads 
tomorrow. So I got rid of three truckloads. I felt like I had, you know, scored a little bit by making that happen. We went, we went into Amazon grocery. We became one of the number one products in Amazon grocery. It was, you know, a crazy year. Um, we, I ended up flying up to Seattle from San Francisco where I live and the buyer said, you know, what's really fascinating about your product is that the people who buy your product are also buying things like diabetes monitors and, uh, you know, different things to actually across categories that help them stay healthy. And I said, that's so interesting because that's my own journey and my own experience. And he said, unlike other beverages that we have, we just don't see that where there's this healthy halo that crosses over into all these other categories. And him saying that sort of took me back to my days in tech where I was really privy to a lot more data than I had been dealing with in the beverage industry when everybody who was selling my product had all the data, but I had zero. And in the case of Starbucks, when they were cutting us out, the, the number one problem that I had with it above and beyond the two weeks notice was that I didn't have the emails. And Starbucks wasn't going to give me the emails, even if they had the emails, they weren't going to give them to me because it was the same thing. It was their data. And so when I asked Amazon um, for the data, I said, I'd love to talk to some of these customers. They said, Jeff Bezos, give you the data. Are you kidding? You're not getting any data. Does, tar- does Starbucks give you data? Does Whole Foods, does Target give you data? Of course not. I mean, why would you think that you'd get data from us? And I said, because you're a tech company, you're Amazon. And and he said, no, come on, you're not, you're not going to get the data. So I went on my Southwest flight, went back to San Francisco and thought that the only way that I was going to be able to get the data, and w- I was hitting myself in the head thinking, why hadn't I thought about this before, was to start drinkhint.com. And, you know, literally that weekend rolled up our, our sleeves and, and just built out this crappy site that was so bad it was so embarrassing it was up for three years we just sat there I I just kept telling everybody don't really look at it but it works and it functions and and you know it's a story also that I share in the book where you know I had everybody around me doubting that it was gonna make it um that you know not only external parties but also my board my investors and you know we basically put no money into it just to kind of prove out the concept. And fast forward today, I mean, that business tripled over the last 12 months. Um, over 50% of our overall business is at drinkhint.com today. And so it's, you know, a long story, but it's one where it's not just about um, digital, Mike. It's really for us. It, it's also been about, you know, doing something that we where where one challenge comes where one failure comes look for the next one um diversify like having options to be able to go and you know pick up the business in some other way is absolutely critical so many lessons in that chapter and i've heard from so many founders and ceos of companies as well that they have their own version of that but i almost think about it as a triangle in many many ways i'm thankful for that experience with starbucks because i think 
if we, if, if I wouldn't have really had that piece of not having the data, then I may not have actually really understood how important data is to you being able to operate your business. And, uh, and that's only escalated, especially through the pandemic. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I, I tell founders all the time, you know, it's like a, nothing stronger. A single-legged stool is, is hard to sit on. But if you have like a, a two-legged stool, even a three- or four-legged stool being different ways to sell online, um, you know, uh, direct-to-consumer online or through bricks-and-mortar grocery or if you're doing private label or if, or if you have a, an ingredient or a food service business um, where if one goes down, like in a pandemic uh, or customer related issues that, uh, that it doesn't, doesn't hurt the business. Um, but 50% uh, direct to consumer is, is a, is a pretty, uh, it's a pretty impressive uh, scale. What's the rest of uh, distribution look like for, for hint now? Well, we, you know, started in the natural channel and then as we expanded, we went into, um, conventional grocery in a very small way and, you know, went DSD in, in New York City and expanded there. And then also kind of by accident, I think most people who have heard the story about Hint have heard that, you know, we went into Google. I mean, that truly happened by accident. They were, Google was trying to hire me, this guy, Omid Cortesani, um, who was a friend and was trying to hire me, had no idea that I had this sort of side hustle, as he called it, with a beverage company, I think really felt sorry for me. And uh, when I turned him down and I said, look, if it's if this job is still around in a year from now, we should definitely talk. Um, but for now, I really, really want to give this a go. I mean, I'm really passionate about it. I feel like I've been successful in my former life. And I mean, why should I why shouldn't I take that chance now? I mean, why isn't now the time to go and take a risk? And so we said, awesome, like you should go for it. And by the way, we're hiring chefs to cook for Google employees. And maybe you could sell this in to Charlie, who is the original chef and at Google. And, and so I, you know, reached out to him and he said, Oh, me, he's like my favorite. And, yeah, sure. Bring a couple cases. I mean, there were no beverages in, in Google. Everybody was told to bring their beverages. And so that business, I mean, it's funny, almost in two weeks, that became our largest account. And people would say, wait, what? I mean, you're in New York City, you're in San Francisco, you're... And, and almost overnight, I mean, we became the largest beverage in Silicon Valley. We had employees, um, still have employees, not while the pandemic is going on, but have employees that work inside of Google headquarters merchandising. I mean, it's a, it's a crazy business. And so we became the number one beverage in Silicon Valley to Google. And when Cheryl left Google, she went to Facebook and her assistant called me and said, let's get hint inside of Facebook. And I mean, all that stuff happened very organically. Um, and, and then what, what was interesting, we, uh, we hadn't gone into Walmart or Sam's club, um, primarily because I just, I, people always ask, like, did you just think like the customers wouldn't be there? And I, I think it was more for me. I couldn't imagine that 
Walmart was necessarily the place where I could remember that brands had been built. And so, um, so, you know, I, I really do believe that there's kind of a pecking order for, especially in the natural food industry. And, and I think for, for me, I, I, we, we probably said no to Walmart more than any other brand, as the buyers said, primarily because we just felt like we, we needed to get the brand a little bit bigger before we went in there. And so we were finally ready to go in there and were confident that our brand had gotten big enough at the end of 2019. And, and that's a whole other story where we were going into Sam's Club and we were kind of sprinkled into a few Costco's here and there. And and uh, and then going into Walmart and Aldi as well. And and then the pandemic hit. And I mean, it was, you know, I can share that story, too, Mike. It was a little bit of a crazy story. It's more about supply chain, if that's in, of interest. Yeah, I, I want to get uh, to supply chain. Um, and, and I would just imagine, I mean, I think about um in a pandemic, water is like toilet paper, right? Um, and, and kind of all food was. But uh, can you kind of talk about, um, because you guys are, um, you don't own manufacturing. It's it's co-packed. Uh, it's co-pack. We co-pack, yeah. Co-pack, yeah. yeah so, so we co-pack. So end of 2019, we're expecting a big year, 2020. We've, you know, really been ramping and doing a lot of incredible things, even though we don't own our, our uh, co-packing facilities, we, um, you know, have parts in, in those co-packing facilities. And I mean, really, for those of you who aren't familiar, my chief operating officer is also my husband of 26 years and Theo, who has, has been anal about um, having, making sure that we are automating our manufacturing because we don't use preservatives in our product that, um, as much as we could do around getting people out of the room when we're actually filling the bottles, that has been his focus for really the last four years. I mean, it's it's been a topic that is a hot topic. So always trying to remove people from um, the facilities. And so by the end of 2019, he had achieved his goal and got everybody out of the room where you actually fill the bottle. And um, we're actually regulated by the FDA, um, unlike traditional bottled water, which is regulated in the U.S. by the states. And so during the time when, you know, COVID was really hitting the U.S. and and I always, I look at it as March, um, we had the FDA inside of our facilities sniffing around to figure out if COVID was coming in through, um, you know, the manufacturing and, um, and food products as well as beverage products like ours. And Yes, Mike, we're, you know, a water company, but we're also an essential product. So I learned very quickly the definition by the FDA of an essential product and that we were, you know, had a lot of requirements behind that, too, to make sure that we were keeping the shelves uh, stocked and also manufacturing. And and basically, when the FDA saw what we had done around automating the facilities, they literally came in and then they walked back out the door because when there's no people in the room, that was really what they had been searching for. So I think there's a major lesson there, which is, you know, always focusing on how you can do better 
right? No matter how many people in the beverage industry said, you guys are crazy that you're trying to remove everybody out of the room. Why do you need automation? We primarily wanted to do automation because we felt like we could scale faster because we knew that we were taking on the impossible Sam's Club, Walmart, and Aldi all at once. I mean, the number of people who said, you guys are nuts. Like, this is going to be your Vietnam. And, um, and so we thought if we actually don't have people sick and we can run the lines 24 hours a day, then, you know, it'll all work out. But what was fascinating is that when the pandemic hit, you know, the FDA came in, they left, everything was cool and we were off to the races. Then we got a phone call from Costco at the, uh, the middle of April and they said, hey, you know, we've dealt with you and a few warehouses. I mean, do you, do you guys do everything in the U.S.? And we, I said, we do. And they said, so um, we have some suppliers that actually can't uh, fulfill um, on their commitment because they manufacture parts or, the, you know, their cans in Asia. And so we have space and you know, we've, we've also heard that you guys have really been focused on automation so you can actually crank stuff out faster. Um, so can we flip the switch and go chain wide in Costco? Um, so we went chain wide in Costco at the beginning of June. So all in, you know, the six month time in a pandemic, I mean, it was, it was insane. And, um, so anyway, the, the business is, um, I mean, it, it was an absolutely crazy year. Our direct-to-consumer business tripled. Um, our overall um, sales grew over 50%. Um, so it was an absolutely nutty year. But I go back to having your supply chain, being a little paranoid, doing what you believe is, is going to allow you to go faster and have better and don't necessarily listen to the industry experts. Well, that's great information. And that's what, I, you know, I'm a big uh, manufacturing guy myself, but I know that, uh, you know, if, if, if you're co-packed, um, that supply chain needs to just be buttoned up, uh, especially if you're going to grow because you're, uh, it's not, not any easier uh, than, uh, than running your own factory if the supply is not there. So, I want, yeah. to, uh, I want to talk social um, because you've, uh, you've amassed, um, quite a social following and it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people uh, across the different platforms on, I know you have, you have a couple hundred thousand people alone on LinkedIn that you're, that, that you're connected with or follow you. And, and uh, I think the same on, on Twitter and, and what's, how have you built your social, what's your, what's your social strategy? I guess what's, what's some um, takeaways for, for people when they're, when they're thinking about uh, um, creating a, a personal brand tied to their, um, tied to their corporate brand? So I think that for, for me, social has just been an extension of communicating with your customer. It's like in many ways, it's a, it's a free way for people to get to know you. And I think that there is no truer time than and no, you know, better way to differentiate yourself than to actually let the consumer know 
who they're buying from, what they're buying from. I mean, I, I can speak to the fact that I have, I have four Gen Zers um, coming, coming around the corner into the workplace. And, you know, they all, every industry, they want to know who's behind this product. They don't trust large companies, especially ones where, you know, the founder, there is no founding story. Um, And so I think that, for me, social was just a way to kind of get the message out there. And frankly, it started, I mean, when we were starting getting our first product on the shelf at Whole Foods, I mean, we just didn't have any money to advertise. So we would go out, I, I really used PR to, to get the story out there and anywhere and everywhere where I could tell the story I did, including I would go to, you know, 10K events and, and hand out samples of Hint, but also share the story of why I believed that this category was, you know, real and necessary and, and my own health story around it. People, you know, resonated with them. And so I thought when I saw social, that's, that was really, you know, another opportunity to just have a platform to let people know about the story and sort of what I think about things. Now I view it as really an opportunity to lift a lot of people up and help people in ways, because I think there are a lot of people, particularly people coming out of this pandemic that are trying to figure out you know, what do I do next? Maybe they've been laid off. Maybe, you know, they don't want to do what they're doing today. And, and kind of just hearing my story and, and hearing where, you know, it wasn't just about being a unicorn or, you know, being a failure, which I think a lot of people think about it as an entrepreneur. There's so many steps along the way and so many challenges. Um, You know, a lot of those things I wrote about in my book as well, where I think being an entrepreneur, as it can be a ton of fun and really rewarding, but I think it's incredibly lonely. And so often I would feel, you know, really sad because I just, you know, a buyer would, I don't know, tell me I was discontinued or, or, you know, something wasn't working out the way that I thought it was going to work out. And I thought if I could just share more of those stories, maybe it will tell people that, you know, it's not over. Um, You know, the number of people who told me, that, hey, if you don't ever get kicked out of a store, not physically, but I mean, with your product, um, because if you get kicked out of the store, um, I remember somebody telling me that about Target. If you get kicked out of Target, then, then you know, that's it. You might as well just close up shop. I mean, we've been kicked out of Target six times over the last 16 years. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, and then you can laugh about it. It wasn't funny at the time, right? I mean, it hurt. And it wasn't necessarily because of me. It was change of strategy. Maybe there's, a, a you know, somebody else adjusted the planogram. And, you know, again, but like people need to know that stuff happens along the way. And some of it you can control, some of it you can't control. But, you know, I would say that biggest advice that I give to entrepreneurs and stuff that I've learned is that I'd say two things. Number one, you, people will tell you, oh, it's absolutely that way. And the truth is, is they don't know. They have no idea. They can only share their own experiences. Um, But also that you just, you have to figure out a way to move forward. And listen to your customer. And if you don't have a relationship with the customer, if you're relying on a, you know, big retailer to tell you 
who likes your, your product or who doesn't like your product, then you're missing out on a huge opportunity. And that, that's sort of the biggest lessons I've learned. Oh, thanks for that. That's some, I, uh, I got a personal golden nugget there because, um, you know, the, um, the knockdown blow was not the knockout blow. So getting, uh, no one wants to get delisted from a retailer, but, uh, if, if it's not over for the business, then what do you got? You got to, you got to pivot. You got to get back up and, and try to figure out uh, what the next steps are. So it's, I think it's good for, uh, I think it's good for more entrepreneurs and founders to, to hear that. And yeah, I just, I would, uh, Kudos to you for uh, for putting yourself out there on social like you have. I see the message, uh, the information that you're sharing, and uh, and it's inspiring. I think uh, I think others can uh, can can learn from it and and position themselves in that way. Yeah, and they're all and they're all very very different too. I mean, that's the other thing that I've learned too. And you know, it's you know, I'm very active on on all of them, but um, but they're all very different for different reasons. And you know, I've I. They can be, they can have moments where they're not that fun, um, too. But I think overall, I just, I feel like you have to really spend time on them and kind of understand, um, you know, what the party is all about. And Clubhouse is different from Twitter, is different from LinkedIn, is different from Instagram and Facebook. I mean, it's just, you have to, and you can't put the same content on all of those platforms or you will fail. I've never been a big social guy, but I've taken to LinkedIn over the last year because of what you said. You know, it's lonely being an entrepreneur. It's even more lonely when uh, when you're at home trying to do that. And and but there yeah. is a uh, there's a good group of uh, of entrepreneurs, especially in the natural products industry, that uh, that are um, supporting each other on LinkedIn. I think that's, that's. Thank you for listening to the Founder to Mentor podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to check out the links and resources in the show notes. You can help the show, please, by subscribing and leaving a positive review. As always, feel free to get in touch with me on social at Mike Fada. That's it for now. See you next time.